0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Junior Ziegler podcast. If you're crazy enough to want more of his content, check out the link in the description of this podcast. That link can get you to his book, his socials, and another podcast. Thanks for hitting play. Here's Junior. You remember cash? Not the singer, but like actual like, like cash, cash, like physical money. Only old people have this in their pocket now. I was, I, during worship, I was like, wait, do I have cash on me? And I was like, I don't, so I had to borrow it from Jack in the back. Jack's not old, though, but I think I took his last dollar. But um, only older people carry this stuff around now. You know, more the younger people, we just kind of manage debt now. Uh, fun fact, this has nothing to do with the message, by the way, but fun fact, when Benjamin Franklin designed the, the penny in 1787— in the motto on the currency, Did you, do you know what the motto was? The original motto that Benjamin Franklin put on the currency? I love it. It's uh, mind your business. That was our first motto. I like that. Why did we get rid of that? Maybe we should get that back into circulation. Though our, our current motto, In God We Trust, is, is good. Uh, maybe, maybe we should have both mottos. You know, like mind your business and trust God. I, I think that would lead to like a, a happier society. It is interesting, though, how In God We Trust became the our money's motto it was in 1861 if you know much about history this is when the civil war was heating up and our nation was in upheaval and when a nation fights itself everyone loses we're kind of experiencing that right now but in 1861 there was this grim cloud of just doom that was looming over our our nation and when faced with fear and and uncertainty people began returning actually to god so realizing the government wasn't in control This mini revival began to spark in 1861. So in November of 1861, a pastor in Pennsylvania wrote a letter to Washington, D.C. with an idea. The whole nation needs to be reminded that God is in control. So let's print that on our currency. And the Capitol read that letter. And here's here's the real miracle. The government actually did something. And in 18, by 1864, in God we trust was printed and began appearing on our, on our coins, reminding the nation that our trust isn't in a government mint, but in God the provider. It's interesting that it's on our money, isn't it? Because the reality is, and you know this, we either worship God with our money or we worship our money as God. There's really no in between. In fact, Jesus himself said, you can't serve two masters. You either have to pick. Is it going to be this pursuit of God in your life or is it going to be this pursuit of money in your life? You have to pick one. You can't have both. And that's why what we're about to study is such a hard-hitting passage. We're going to be in James chapter 5 this morning. James chapter 5, I encourage you to grab a Bible. We've got Bibles in the chairs. It's page 1013 in those Bibles. Otherwise, I know a lot of people use phones. We have the Bridge app. Uh, we can take notes on there and have the Bible on one spot. But whether it's a physical Bible or a virtual Bible, James chapter 5 is, is where we're going to be. This is our 10th week in a, of our series looking at Jesus' little brother, James, and the book that he wrote. When we first sat down to plan out this book, we, we figured we'd do nine weeks, but it's just been too good not to not to savor, and so we're, we're just going longer and we're, we're having fun with it. Though today's text... Uh, maybe not so fun. Talk about some strong, harsh language that we're going to get into. James just seems to tear into rich people. You almost wonder if, like, James had a proofreader. One of, the, one of the things our church staff does for each other is we actually proofread each other. So, for example, my sermons, before I, I preach, I have several people that, like, comb through the content. I know it's hard to believe, but I, I do. You should see it before it gets filtered, but once in a while, a staff member will pop into my office after reading you know, through the sermon. They'll go, ah, Junior, you might want to rephrase that. I don't think you mean to sound harsh, but it just kind of feels that way. So I need proofreaders. Uh, I, I got an email from a pastor a couple weeks ago, and I thought, man, did you have anybody proofread this email first? Because you would have made some good, necessary changes. And that's kind of how I see when I read James at first. Like, I read through this text, and I'm like, bro, did you have anybody proofread this before sending it? Like, this is hard. But once you get a little deeper, we find some gold. So Buckle up. We're going to go for it. Let me pray and we'll jump into this. God, I thank you so much for your word. We thank you for James. I thank you for the, the man that, that you molded him into. Jesus' little brother grew up following and running after Jesus. and, and Yet, in his adult years, he still ran after Jesus. And God, we, we want to we do the same. We want to be a church that runs after Jesus. And so Father, may you humble us before we get into your word because we need that. This is a hard-hitting passage. And God, may we be um, not just ready for it, but may we be open to what you have for us here. This is your word and we believe it's true and we receive what it says. In the name of Jesus, please open our hearts and engage our minds, amen. Well, as we enter into James chapter 5, The sun begins to set over a rural first century town, which signals the end of the workday. And as the sky goldens laborers in, in the field outside of town, they tie up their last bundles of crop. One quick glance at these men, and you can tell these are field men. The dirt under their fingernails is thick. Their skin is leathered from the sun. Today's wage will be just enough to put food on the table for dinner and possibly some loose fabric to patch their family's clothes. Life is not easy for these men. Their wives spend the days pinching pennies to keep the kids from becoming too slim, and, and their ratty clothes from exposing their kids. Back in the fields, the, the men pack up their tools, and, and they head to the, the field owner for payment. Life for the owner is far different. They live in that part of town, the, the bigger home part of town, the, 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 the part of town that has more security, more patrolling. Everyone in the neighborhood seems to shop at the same boutique because everyone wears purple. It's just the sign of wealth to wear purple, the identifier of money. Embroidery, uh, embroidered stitching gives, gives character to their robes. The owner of this certain field has a closet filled with purple and thick outer clo- cloaks for those cooler days. Dinner's always a feast. The wealthy owner knows no discomfort of life. And as the laborers of the field approach him for their agreed upon wage, he tells them to return later. I I will give you your agreed upon wage. Just come back, work tomorrow, and then we'll settle up then. A few men groan, knowing this means there will be nothing to buy food for tomorrow's dinner. It's a common yet dirty trick the, the owners play withholding wages for a time, and then restructuring the deal later on when the, when the laborers are more desperate for any sort of payment. This little dirty trick makes the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. The poverty rate during this time is 80%. 80% are scrounging, working hand to mouth. Much of the other 20% take advantage of the desperation of everyone else's poverty. Corruption is rampant. Politicians and judges are paid off constantly by the wealthy. It wasn't even hidden. And this is the context in which James writes this. He writes, come now, you rich. And it's here we go. I'm off the hook on this one. Isn't it? Ah, This is for somebody else. I thought, you know, Junior said James is coming after us. He's not coming after me. He's going after the rich. And so I'm good. You know, it's funny. Rich people live in denial. You ever notice this? Rich people just, they they live in denial. Nobody thinks they're rich, which is really weird because, you know, tall people, they admit they're tall and short people admit they're short and artsy people will tell you that they're artsy and introverts will tell you they're introverted and extroverts, they can't wait to tell you they're extroverted. But rich people, they rarely admit they're rich. It's interesting. Gallup Research did a survey recently asking, what is rich? That's a great question. What is rich? Because it's really hard to define. It kind of seems subjective. Like there's times where you feel rich, right? You go to somebody's house, you're like, I kind of feel rich because I'm doing better than them. But then you go to somebody else's house, you're like, okay, I don't feel rich. So there's times where we feel poor and there's times that we feel rich. It kind of depends on the environment we're in. We're human. We, we tend to compare ourselves with everybody around us. And so sometimes we're rich, sometimes we're not. I noticed this in myself uh, this last July. I was flying down to Honduras, our or, or church is partnering with, a, with uh, just one international to build a education built uh, center in a very poor area of Honduras. And so I went down to just check out on on the project. And on the way down to Honduras, I got stuck in in Miami. Now, luckily, I have I have friends who have a high rise condo in North Miami, like right on the ocean. So I called them and you like free place to stay. And so I went there and it was it was nice. Like walking through the parking garage, I felt very poor. I mean, there's like Bentleys and Porsches and Jaguars. Like the whole garage was just filled with them. This neighborhood was like old money, ritzy, classy. I felt so poor. I felt so far behind. I walked through that garage thinking like, I'm in the wrong business here. Next morning, I wake up, I jump on a flight to Comi- Comiagua, walk out of the airport, and right away, I felt like the richest man in the world. That night I had, I had dinner at a woman's house who worked 16-hour days for $2 a day. I had two months of her income just loose in my pocket. So you think about that. Within 12 hours, I went from the poorest to the richest without my net worth changing one bit. That's why it's so hard to have this conversation about rich people. Like nobody thinks they're rich. And if you ever do feel like you're rich, well then just get around somebody who's, who's more rich and then suddenly you don't feel rich anymore. And so Gallup Research said, okay, well, let's put a number on this then. What is rich? And it came back that the average American defined rich as a household combined income of $150,000 a year. So, to the average American household income, this is rich. But again, I bet if you were to talk to a family who, who brings this in, they would say, What are you talking about? I'm not rich. The same survey polled people who made thirty to forty thousand a year. People who made thirty to forty thousand a year said, "Well, it's those who make seventy-five thousand a year who are rich." But again, if you went into somebody's house and their household income was seventy-five thousand a year, they would say, "What are you talking about? I'm not rich." Money Magazine, who has a wealthier subscriber base, they they asked the same question, and you know what came back to them? the average subscriber to Money Magazine said five million in liquid assets is rich. So if you have one million, no, you're not, yeah. You know. Two million, no. Three, no. Four, still not there. Five million, all right, you're rich. But again, if you were to talk to somebody who has five million in liquid assets, I bet they would say, well, what are you talking about? I'm not rich. See, bottom line, research shows that nobody is rich, but everyone knows someone who is. Right? Isn't that just true for all of us? It's why we look at verse 1 and we think, "Okay, this isn't for me, but I do know someone who should read this text." Here's a statistic that'll make you think. If you make 44 to 45,000 a year, household income, you are in the top 1% wage earners in the world. And some even have this number far lower. You're rich. You're rich. And I knew there'd be silence when I said that. I knew nobody would jump up and say, Praise God, I'm rich. I came to church today feeling poor, and I learned that I'm ri- I've been rich for years. Like, I knew there would just be silence. Because now we look at this verse and we go, Oh, I guess James is talking to me. Well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. Keep in mind, James isn't talking to all rich people as if being rich is sinful, which by the way, it's not. There's a movement right now demonizing wealth as if it's like wrong to be successful. I don't get it. If someone works hard and someone works smart, enjoy the fruit of their labor. Why are we demonizing that? Having wealth is not a sin. Some, some of the heroes in the Bible are very, very wealthy. Something we have to remember when, when we read this text from James that James, Jesus' little brother, he grew up He grew up in synagogue. He grew up reading a lot of the Old Testament, memorizing large portions of the Old Testament. And so James is very influenced by Old Testament writers. And there's several times in the Old Testament where where prophets would blast corrupt wealthy people. They would say, woe to you rich, woe to you rich. It's a a common theme throughout the Old Testament. And so what happened was that this this word that James uses for rich, which is pluseo, this word became synonymous with crooked rich people. Now, today we translate it as just rich people, but the common use for it during James's time was crooked rich. There are two different types of wealthy people. And this is good to know because we're all wealthy, right? There's two different types of wealthy people. There's two types of, you're either one or the other. There's godly and there's ungodly wealthy people. So there's godly wealthy people, people who work hard, they work smart, and they use the product of their hard work to bless others. Then there's ungodly wealthy who abuse their wealth, who consume it all, and rarely, if ever, look for a need or something to bless. And so what's going to happen here is James, in a very cutthroat way, he's going, to, he's going to say, let me define what ungodly wealthy is. Since we're all wealthy, let's, let's see if we're ungodly or godly wealth. And this is, this is what James is going to get at. So we're going to read these next few verses. We're going to find some characteristics of ungodly wealthy. This is what James writes, verse 1. He writes, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Never seen that verse sewn on a doily. Your corroded money will eat your flesh like fire. Like James, did you lose your girl to a rich guy or something? Like what's going on? Well, again, he's not talking to godly rich, he's talking about ungodly rich, and he defines ungodly rich here as hoarding. Hoarding. A characteristic of ungodly wealthy is hoarding. Now, let's be clear here. We're not talking about saving. Okay, saving is good. Proverbs is littered with with commands telling us to be wise and to save, like you should save. There is a difference between saving and hoarding, and it's not an amount. So I'm not saying, hey, once you get to like, this amount right here, now you're hoarding. No, no. Poor people hoard too. In fact, they made a show about it. You ever seen Hoarders? It's disgusting, right? So whether you're wealthy or not, you can hoard. It's not an amount, it's an attitude. Hoarding is when we begin to pursue things so that we no longer feel dependent on God. That's the attitude of hoarding. So if I can just have this amount in these accounts, if I can just stockpile this, I'll be good. I'll be more independent, and I'll be more at peace. I won't need God as much. So there's not much giving. Uh, money isn't u- viewed as this tool to bless. Money's more viewed as this tool to eliminate personal need for God. It's about eliminating my dependence on God. That's hoarding. Like this is exactly why Jesus said that it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, because they just don't, they don't see themselves as dependent. It's hard for us to feel dependent, isn't it? Like we go home, we have stuff. We have fridges and pantries full of food. We have accounts with money in it or credit limits. Like our feeling of independence keeps us from seeing our dependence on God. Which is why he says at the end of verse three, he says, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Now this is not a positive thing, okay? We we could read this with, with some sarcasm. This is not a treasure you want, Hoarded treasure in the last days will be a curse. Here's the way I think of this. Um, once a year, Nicole and I, we, we take our girls down to Florida because you know I have those friends with, with a condo in Florida. And so we, we go down there and we're able to stay there for free. And, and my girls love it, like the ocean and the oceanographic centers and the, the Everglades, like, our, our, our friends down there, they let us use their, their condo. It's, just, it's a blessing to us. And my girls will, will spend the week treasure hunting. They'll scour the beach for a week, picking up shells and fish bones and coral that washes up, even dead crabs. Each of them have a mesh bag, and they just pile all the treasure that they find on the beach in those, in those bags. The rule is, though, they can't bring that bag inside. That bag has to stay outside because that bag stinks to high heaven especially when we get to the end of the week, right? You get to that bag, you just, you, you, you look inside of it and you just want to puke. It's like rotting crabs and pieces of fish and, and snails. It's like, it just, it, it pierces your sinuses. It's, it's awful. So by the end of the week, they throw their treasure away. They're gagging as they throw their collection of treasure away. They don't want what they just spent their week collecting. This is exactly what James is getting at here. So many of us are spending our lives collecting stuff that's going to be a curse in the end. We spend our lives hoarding and collecting and pursuing that which has the potential to curse us in the end. Will our receipts, will our accounts, will our purchases, will our spending habits bless us or curse us when we get to the end? And for James says, The hoarder is laying up this treasure that will testify against them. He continues on in verse four. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. So he's addressing this common dirty trick that the wealthy would play, right? I'm gonna withhold your wages until you're desperate. And then when you're desperate enough, I'm going to restructure the deal so that I can keep more and you walk away with less. And he's giving us a second characteristic of ungodly rich is you cheat. Those who are ungodly rich, not only do they hoard, but they cheat to get the money or to keep the money. Now, this never happens to us today, right? Cheating on taxes, nobody ever does that. You know, stealing sales, nobody ever does that. Under the table earnings, nobody ever does that. Cheating partners and deals, expensing purchases that you shouldn't expense. I think this happens all the time. And James said, hey, God sees. God sees. Justice is mine, declares the Lord. It's a good sobering thought. How we get our money and how we keep our money, it is being monitored. Continues on in verse five. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. My goodness, James is pulling no punches, is he? You have made life so comfortable and pleasurable just sitting back. You're about as dumb as the pig who says, wow, look at how well this farmer's feeding me. And he's giving us another characteristic of of ungodly wealth, and that is indulging. 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 Now, the original word that James uses in verse 5 right here means excessive comfort, which kind of hits me between the eyes because I like excessive comfort. I really like being comfortable. In fact, I can be borderline obsessed with dreaming about making my life more comfortable. I just got back from, from Israel um, last week and it was nice and warm there. When we flew in, it was a cold night. It was 12 degrees at O'Hare when we flew in. And I walk into my house and my nice warm house had a draft, just a little bit of a draft and I could feel it. And immediately I was looking into, maybe I should buy like a, a, a wood burning stove. Like I gotta get rid of this draft. I'm always thinking about how to add comfort into my life. I love, one of the things I love doing is channeling my inner old man, and putting on my robe, and my slippers, and my couch reclines, and I got my TV. Like, this, that's what I'm gonna do this afternoon, by the way. Especially with it raining, I'm going home, I'm putting on my robe, my pajamas, and I am going to sit on my butt this afternoon in my pajamas. I, I have this thing about pajamas. I, I'm a pajama connoisseur. I have pajamas for different occasions. That sounds crazy, but, but I really do. Last night, um, Pastor Brian, one of the pastors on staff, he, he texted me he's like, hey, you know, I got family over. Do you want to come over and, and hang out with the family? And I looked at that text, I was making dinner, and I was like, I'm in my pajamas. And I, I said, that's fine, but I'm coming in my pajamas. Because I just, I love pajamas. I love being comfortable. I love adding comfort into my life. And while it's okay to like, you know, kick back on Sabbath, there is a line. Indulgence is when you never or rarely ever go outside of your comfort. And it's tragedy because that's where God meets us, in our discomfort. If you ever find yourself thinking, I, I, I rarely if ever have these, like, these, these connections with God, I would say then get outside of your comfort zone. I pointed this out on our Israel tour last week. We were driving through the, the Judean desert. Very harsh terrain, jagged rocks, hot, just you know, complete discomfort when you walk through. Just nothing really living. This right here is where Jesus fasted for 40 days. This is where Jesus went to go meet with God. That speaks volumes. Our meeting spot with God is always in our discomfort. It's really when we strip away all of the comfort and the pleasures of life where we experience God in deeper ways. But what happens is we, 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 our lives become so padded and so comfortable. We sit there in our pajamas feasting. We're a hedonist, chasing pleasure after pleasure, indulging ourselves, and we miss out on what we really want, more of God. That's why Jesus said the, the wealthy are going to have a hard time entering the kingdom of God because they can't see past their comfort. They can't see past their pleasures. They don't, they don't experience the discomfort where they meet with God indulging i'm still putting on my robe when i get home but it's sabbath we continue on he says you have condemned and murdered the righteous person he does not resist you see what he's saying in other words he's saying is you use your power and you use your position and you use your title and you use your wealth and you use your influence only for yourself you use your power and your title and your money to get your way And he's giving us the other characteristic, the last characteristic of ungodly wealth, and that is manipulating. You use what God has given you to manipulate to get your way. To many people, a gift is never really a gift. Their gifts always come with strings attached. I'm gonna give you this, but I'm keeping record of that in case I need to get my way later on. It's manipulating. Using wealth, not to bless, but ultimately to keep score to get your way. It's like the, the woman who called me uh, years ago. She went to our church, and she was upset about something that I said while preaching. I don't remember what it was. Like, all right, take your pick. But I was listening to her you know, on the phone. She's very angry. She's upset, you know, just kind of unloading all of her frustration. And toward the end of the conversation, I said, you know, I appreciate your viewpoint, and I appreciate you, you coming to me. But here's the thing, we're just gonna have to agree to disagree on this one. But luckily it's not a big deal, right? We can just disagree and still be in church together. And she responded by saying, Junior, I give. And there's like this long pause. I thought she was gonna like say more. I was like, okay. And she clarified, she said, I've given a lot over the years. I think I deserve an apology. So the giving wasn't a gift. It was strings attached. It was manipulation. I told her, like, all right, this church church just isn't for you. Our budget is a gift from God that we get to participate in, not leverage to manipulate each other. But that actually happens quite often in in churches, usually small churches. You know, there's, like, one big donor in in a smaller church, and, like, most of the budget is their gift, and some really use that reality to sway decision-making in the church. But it's not just churches. This is very common. We can do it with each other. I can do it. I can be guilty of it. The, the, the other week I got Nicole something. I got her a gift just like out of the blue. And I found myself thinking, I got to remember this. Like next time she's mad at me. You know, next time I want something, I got I to remember, you know, I got some brownie points on this gift. You know, which is kind of funny, but it, you know, in reality, it's just, what am I doing? I'm, I'm just manipulating. It wasn't really a gift. I was using that for manipulation. Using our resources to just get our way. James says that's ungodly. Three things we get from James. Number one is God doesn't care how much you make. God doesn't care how much you make. So James right here, let's be clear, he's not preaching a poverty gospel. You ever hear poverty gospel? It can be kind of like a big thing. Poverty gospel is like this whole idea of, um, you know, you have to be poor in order to be godly. It's just not true. I know a lot of ungodly poor people. If, if you have resources, that's fantastic. What a blessing. There's a lot of people in Scripture that, that, that were well-resourced and, and blessed other people with it. God doesn't care how much you make. He just doesn't care how much you make. It doesn't impress him. Now, it impresses us, right? We often measure each other based on, on who makes what, and we like to get closer to those who make a lot more just in case they drop something, you know? I have a few friends who, who, who have been successful, very godly, wealthy people, very generous and, and wise and periodically, we'll go out for like dinner or something. And even though I look homeless, they, they still invite me to tag along with them and their rich friends. And just watching how people kiss their feet, it's unbelievable. One time at dinner, I told one of them, I said, man, it's, got, it's just gotta be terrible to have what you have. Like, what do you mean? It's like, people are annoying around you, bro. I feel bad for you. And you're the one with the money. Some people are just ridiculous around wealth. They just fall all over themselves and they're around rich people and kiss their butt at every turn. I think it's just good to know God doesn't do that. It doesn't impress him. When we get to the end, God's not going to be you know, more favorable with the wealthy people because oh, let's, we gotta be kind. He doesn't care how much you make. He's got more. He just doesn't care how much you make, but he does care how you get it. He cares how you make it. He doesn't care how much you make, but he cares how you got it. When, when I was in high school, I worked at an auto body shop. And uh, there, there was this one customer, he'd always come in, um, this guy was cool. He had long hair, he had tattoos, He's just like my kind of guy. And, and he, owned, he owned several incredible cars. One day he rolled into the shop in a Dodge Viper. And when I was a kid, I thought there was like nothing better than a Dodge Viper. I, I, I had to sit in it. So I, I you know, asked him if I could sit in it, and I'm sitting in it, and I was like, I said no, I was like, dude, obviously you have money, like, but you don't look like it, you look like me. How did, how did you get it? And he gave me one word answer. He said, lawsuits. Come to find out, this guy had no skill. He had nothing to offer society, n- n- no business mind. He just had a good lawyer, and he sued people and companies. And so, you know, after he told me this, he asked, he's like, you want to drive my Viper? I was like, uh, no, I don't think I can afford a potential lawsuit. This guy had money, but like, what a waste. What a waste. Just cheating people. God cares how you get and keep what you have. For those of you who own businesses, he cares how you do business. He cares how you treat your employees. He cares about your business tactics. He cares about how you cut costs. Yeah, be smart, but he cares how you do it. He cares about your business deals. He cares about your saving and your spending habits. God doesn't care how much you have. He's got more, but he does care how you get it. And he cares how you use it. He gave it to you and he cares what you do with it. The way I think about it is uh, I think of it like we're all rivers. We're all rivers. God's blessing is meant to flow from God through us to others. So as God loves us, which he does, we love, we, that love flows through us and we love others better because that, God's love is flowing through us. As God gives to us, we enjoy what God gives to us, but it also flows through us to his work. James in this text is calling out those who dam up the river. God's bless, God blesses with success and monetary blessing, but there are those who just dam it up. I'm going to hoard it. I'm going to indulge in it and I'm going to manipulate with it. And don't get me wrong, God still wants us to enjoy his blessing, to enjoy success and monetary blessing that that comes our way. We enjoy that, but we can also, when we dam up the river, it never flows through us. We just create this lake of stuff. And James says that lake that you created will testify against you in the end. God doesn't care how much you make, how much is flowing through you, but he does care how you get it, and he absolutely cares what you do with it. To which we can look at this text we can think, okay, listen, Junior, I get this. I get what you're saying. In fact, I can get on board with a lot of what you're saying. But like, why is this such a big deal? Like we read through this text and James is so passionate about this. It almost feels like he's ranting, doesn't it? Like he just goes off. Your corroded currency will eat your flesh. It's like, my goodness, why is this such a big deal? And then to add to that, like Jesus talked about money all the time. It's his number one topic. Is this really that big of a deal? Like can't we, as Ben Franklin put on his penny, Can't we just mind our business? Here's why this is such a big deal. Money directs cravings. Money directs cravings. And that's the thing, you know this. We live with cravings. We live with cravings. You're human, you crave. We crave different things. We crave success, we crave power, we crave comfort, we crave good images, we crave safety we crave food, we crave sex, we crave adventure. Like even this morning, even this morning, you experienced some cravings, didn't you? Made some breakfast, had some cravings for some breakfast, or maybe you crave some coffee, or you crave community, or you crave attention. Like we live with cravings. And the reality is, is our lives are determined by our response to our cravings. The more we feed a craving, the stronger that craving will get. It's kind of like, it's kind of like, so I've been on this journey of, of trying to get healthier this year. It sucks, I hate it. it. It's been a journey, especially the eating part. Like I just, I, I like eating and I really messed up this Thanksgiving because we had some good food. But I've, I've learned though, the first food that you eat in the morning actually determines what you crave the rest of your day. So if you wake up and for breakfast, you know, you have like sugar and carbs, you're going to crave sugar and carbs more the rest of the day which is the worst because I have daughters who like Captain Crunch in the mornings. So I'm trying to be healthy and I'm like having like avocados and and, and eggs and I'm pouring them their cereal and I just, I want that sugary goodness. But not only is that sugary goodness bad for me, if I eat that, I'm going to crave that sugary goodness for the rest of the day. This is exactly how our money works. Every time we spend money, we awaken a craving in ourselves. Any Amazon addicts in here? Yeah? All right. A lot of you are Amazon addicts and you're just not raising your hands. I can see the shame on your face and the elbows from your spouse. There's something about adding things to your cart on Amazon, isn't there? And just hitting that buy button. And then like you get two days to just look forward. You know to a Christmas on your porch? It's addicting. They, they did a um, there was a funny study last year that showed that a lot of people, when they receive an Amazon package, they don't even remember what's in it. You ever been guilty of that? They're like, what did I buy again? <laughs> like, I've just been buying so much, I forgot what I ordered. The more you buy, the more you crave, the more you scroll. Last night, I was, I was on my couch and I had added some stuff to my Amazon cart like last week, and I was like, I don't really need this. You just kind of put it on hold, but then kind of got to the point where I was like, I do want that. I'll just buy it and be kind of done with it. So last night, I hit the buy button. Within, no joke, within about 20 minutes, my cart was filled back up because I hit buy and I was like, I want to keep scrolling. Because what did I do? When I hit bought, I, I awakened a craving. in me. Your money, how you spend your money directs your cravings. This is exactly why Jesus says, where your money is, there you're gonna find your heart. Where your money is, there, you're, there your heart will be also. He said that because he knows us. He created us. He, he, he knows when we spend a craving awakens. This is why Proverbs eleven twenty four says, one gives freely, is that river? Yeah, it grows all the richer. Another withholds. And that word for withhold can mean hoard, indulge, manipulate. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers one. I think we live in a society that suffers greatly from just one. When we allow God's blessing to flow through us, it releases us from those unhealthy cravings. But the one who withholds, indulges, dams up that river, hoards, lives suffering from cravings. Our money directs our cravings. And this truth can either be a good thing or a bad thing. How we spend our money can awaken this pleasure or this craving for pleasure or comfort or image, but how we spend our money can also awaken this craving for healthy pursuits for the kingdom of God. Let me, let me just be super candid with you for a second. I, and I mean this. I feel like such a hypocrite preaching this. I have so much work to do when it comes to this. Directing my cravings with money. I'm just, I'm just not, I'm not good at it. I, I hate talking about money. I, like even with my wife, there's times where she's like, hey, can we sit down and like budget?" She's like, I don't want to talk about money. It's just not sexy. I just, I hate money. I don't even want to talk about it. Like I, I'm not very intentional. I'm not very good at this. And I, I realized how bad I am at this two weeks ago. I don't know if you were at a church, if you were in a church services two weeks ago, but my dad preached a sermon from the, uh, from the Sea of Galilee. Were, were you there for that? So it was, that was a fun day. Um, we filmed that sermon the first day that we, we landed in Israel. And uh, so I jumped in the car with, with my dad and my wife and one of our worship guys. And we went to like different spots to, to film. So if you, if you saw it, like we were in a valley and then, you know, we went to a couple of like live excavation sites. Before we filmed my dad's full sermon, he was getting hungry. So he was like, let's stop for lunch. And we stopped for lunch in this plaza just off the Sea of Galilee. Next to the restaurant was this shoe place. And in the window, they had a pair of boots that I had been having my eye on for like a year. I'm a boot guy. I just like boots. And I love these boots that were in the window. But they were an investment. I was like, ah, whatever, you know, I, I'll go in. I'll try them on. You know, I'm, some, I'm there with like Hayden and, and my dad. And, and I'm trying them on. I'm like, oh, these are so comfy. But I was like, no, nah, I shouldn't do it. I shouldn't. So I, I, I said no. And I walked out of the store. My dad didn't help, though. He's like, come on, Junior. It's Israel. Like, you've been wanting them. It's a great souvenir. Just get them. So I went in and, and I did it. I bought them and I put them on with all this excitement. I jumped in the car, drove to film my dad's sermon. That punk who encouraged me to buy those boots then preaches a message on generosity and how much stuff we have. So my dad's preaching, I'm behind the camera and I'm looking at my new boots. Honestly, I'm looking at them in shame. Like seriously, I'm so convicted looking at these stupid boots. He's preaching a message. He just told me to buy them and he's preaching a message on it. My treasured boots were testifying against me, as James writes. I just didn't feel right wearing them. I'm thinking, man, I got plenty. I got a closet full of boots back home. I shouldn't have bought these. So, as I'm filming my dad's sermon, this real war is going on inside of me. It's like this this worst feeling of of conviction. I, I can't return them. So, after we got done filming, I found someone with the same shoe size and I gave him the boots. Like what I had wanted, that treasure, I actually ended up hating. I didn't want them on my feet. And the funniest thing happened when I gave those boots away. That war inside of me, that, that twisted craving that I had awoken, it just stopped. And something different happened. Suddenly, I just wanted to give more. I gave away those boots and thinking, I just want to live on less. I, I don't need anything. I, I, don't, I didn't want to pursue purchases. I didn't want to go shopping. I cared less about that pursuit. Releasing those boots freed me and awakened a different craving in me? I don't know, it's it's a stupid pair of boots. But how many of us are living like that? How many of us this past week, just all these pursuits, scrolling on Amazon, hitting the stores on Black Friday, and I'm not saying it's wrong, but just all of these pursuits, in reality, when we get to the end, we're just going to hate it. Where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be. If you want your heart in the right place, you got to spend in the right places. Thanks again for listening. Again, for more content, just scroll down to the podcast description and follow the link. Before we call it, would you be kind enough to share this podcast? It goes a long way. Blessings on you today. See you next time.